You know I'm not going to let you live that down. You shouldn't let me live it down. You should constantly remind me not to make stupid mistakes. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of MTG Under the Hood. I'm Chris, and I'm joined today by Joe. Let's jump into this episode as we dive into the reach ability. So, Joe, we're going to start something off new with this episode, and uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? So, we're going to start off with what we're calling the Deck of the Week. Each of us is going to present a new idea that we have for various decks that are out there. Something we maybe are working on that's new, or something that we've played in the past, but we're really excited about it. And really the only point of this is to just throw out different deck ideas that are out there. Maybe there'll be something that you've heard before, but maybe there's something that you haven't heard of before. Give people some new ideas for what all is really out there. So I'm going to start off with my deck idea for this week, and it comes to us from one of the new cards from the most recently released set, Kaldheim. When we did our pre-release, we, I was lucky enough to pull Vorinclex Monstrous Raider in the, uh, the new Phyrexian Rune version, and I was really excited. So I've decided to go ahead and have him lead a commander deck. So we're going to have a mono-green Vorinclex Monstrous Raider commander deck and it's going to have a plus one, plus one counter theme. So basically, number of the cards in there will either come in with plus one, plus one counters, or we'll have, be able to add counters to the creatures. And because of Vorinclex, you'll get double the plus one, plus one counters, while also keeping counters off of your opponents, or whatever counters they might decide to add if their deck has to do that. Mostly we're not worried about Vorinclex's ability on that part. We're trying to buff our own creatures with double the counters. Chris, what are you excited about this this week? Well, as soon as it was uh as soon as it was previewed, I just went, that's adorable. I need it. And uh so I'm going to be building a commander deck, a brawl deck, commander deck. I'm not quite sure with, but either one will work with uh Toski, bearer of secrets, you know, it's the indestructible squirrel. Um indestructible squirrel. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's all about, I can go squirrel tribal with it, so just have a bunch of squirrels and everything, go wide, and, you know, draw a bunch of cards that way, or I can, I was thinking about even just doing, maybe not having it as a head of one of my uh, deck, but throwing it into something that will, that I already have that it will play nice into, Mm -hmm. it's just that by doing it that way, I'm not guaranteed to always play it, so... I'm still trying to figure out where I want to do it. I just know that that card is either going to be a head somewhere or it's going to be a feature in one deck right. or something like that. So Nice. Nice. Sounds like fun. We'll have to play the decks against each other oh, sometime. Yeah. All right. Well, it seems like we have some nice new decks that we're excited about, and maybe you're excited about something based off of what we just discussed. Let's get into our next segment. Important information for especially new players, but hey, maybe we'll have some information that our experienced players don't know. These are our words to live by. Chris, start us off. All right, so the first word to live by is land drop. Um, Simply put, this is just playing your land on your turn. You typically want to play one land each turn. Missing, Missing playing a land is missing your land drop. Now, land drop also feeds into... Um, two other things. 
if you are drawing nothing but lands and you aren't getting anything to play with those lands, that's what we uh, tend to call being mana flooded. You have all of this land, but nothing to use it on. The other side of that argument is uh, mana screwed. You have all of your big, flashy, you know, shiny toys that you just want to play and show off, do all the lovely shenanigans with. But you have no land to do it. So land drops are important just so that you are playing consistently and that your deck runs smoothly. And if you're either getting flooded or screwed at certain points, that's usually a good indicator that you need to go back and reevaluate your deck and yeah. either thin somewhere, or like thin out some land cards or add more land cards, stuff like that. Joe, what do you got? Well, since we're talking about mana sources, there's two other slang terms you should know. The first is mana rock. Now this is a term that basically refers to any artifact that can produce mana, whether it's through tapping or just gaining mana through some sort of triggered ability. A mana rock is basically an artifact that provides mana. And the other one is the mana dork. Mana dorks are creatures that can tap for mana or provide mana in some way. Usually mana dorks tend to be pretty weak and inexpensive, but regardless, if they provide mana, we tend to call them a mana dork. Yep. Essentially, a mana dork is just a rock on a body. Yep, basically. All right, so today's show focus, like I said in the intro, is about Reach. Uh, Reach was first introduced in Alpha, but it was keyworded in Future Sight. So whenever it was introduced in Alpha, it was originally worded, this creature can, can block creatures with flying. And then in Future Sight, that's where it got the Reach ability. Now, Reach's rules from the comprehensive rules are 702.17, Reach. 702.17a, Reach is a static ability. Uh, 702.17b, a creature with flying can't be blocked except by creatures with flying and or Reach. See Rule 509, Declare Blocker Step, and Rule 702.9, Flying. And the last one is 702.17c. Multiple instances of reach on the same creature are redundant. Saying that last bit is really important. You know, you, you can't give your creature double reach. There, there's no benefit to having reach on a creature twice. It's just, it, it's redundant. So reach is reach, only applies once no matter how many times that keyword ability shows up on a creature. So we're going to throw out a little disclaimer now as we move into the next part of our, our show. The following information regarding Reach is really partly our opinions. There's some facts in there as well, but mostly it's our opinions. We're giving you know, players ideas and a launching point in your deck building or maybe some new perspectives. But really, remember, anything here is taken with a grain of salt, and you should always evaluate these keyword abilities and build decks based on your favorite play style. So Reach is a pretty important ability, and we have a couple featured cards that we'd like to discuss that have this keyword ability on them. Chris, give us the first one. All right, so the first one is Stone Coil Serpent. What makes this one so special is, well, first it's uh, Stone, Co Stone Coil Serpent, converted mana cost of X. It's an artifact creature snake with reach, trample, protection from multicolors. Stone Coil Serpent enters the battlefield with X plus one plus one counters on it. What makes this a featured card is because it's one of only a handful of colorless creatures with reach. 
Stone Coil Serpent is just a powerhouse just because you can play it at any time and you can play it early in the game and it'll just you know be a nice little like blocker or you can play it late game and just absolutely pose people and with it having reach it is a very good blocker it came out in throne of eldraine so it's still relatively new and joe what do you have well, the other one we have is actually an earlier card. This is Rashka the Slayer. Rashka the Slayer is actually one of the earliest, not necessarily the earliest, but one of the earliest cards to feature that original Reach ability. It's from the Homeland set, and it says, Can block creatures with flying. And then if it's assigned to block any black creatures, it gets some added bonuses to its stats. But this is one of those early cards that are experimenting with ways to keep flying creatures at bay even when the creatures are on the ground with reach there are around 200 cards uh, i know there's at least 200 that's just where i stopped counting um but i can tell you that primarily it is in green uh secondarily it's in red and then third most common color is white and that's the reason why it's mostly green is because um, in my opinion, I think it's paying homage to the uh, fact that it was originally in green with all of the spiders. Yeah, definitely. Because it was originally considered to be the spider ability. Spider ability, archer ability. Yep. I mean, with Roshka the Slayer, you know, you can see that the character is featured with a bow. Yep. So, yeah. But at the same time, I also think that green tends to stand out as the primary color for Reach since blue and white end up being the cards that have the most flying creatures. And green has hardly any creatures with flying. So it's like sort of the offset. If we're not going to have flying, we're going to block creatures with flying. Yeah, that makes sense too. But yeah, definitely, definitely green. When we start talking about reach and how it really works in with the featured decks and everything, you don't really see a deck that revolves around the reach keyword ability necessarily however if you can get a creature with reach into your deck it's usually a good idea you know assuming that you know the creature works with your mechanics you know, what else you're trying to do with the deck and everything work it in because it is a nice just defensive ability against that blue white flyers deck that you know is going to show up at some point while you're playing yeah i mean <laughs> plus reach is just I mean, even Stone Coil Serpent, it's colorless, so you can throw it anywhere. That's it, true. It's a X card, so it's a you can kind make of it choose a, your own size variant on yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah, pick your pick your own adventure. <laughs> <laughs> so Reach is very good at defensive, not very good at offensive because it doesn't really give you anything. But Reach is very defensive and just allows you to block different threats that you normally shoot that you normally couldn't. Um, so yeah, I completely agree with you. If you can throw, re if you can find something to put into your deck that works that has reach, do it. That card will probably go in once and never come out. Yeah, unless it is replaced by something better with mm -hmm. reach as well. As with all of our mechanics and abilities that we discuss, you know, reach works well and and not so well with other abilities and whether they're you know activated or keyword abilities that we find throughout the game. Reach, I think, you know, one of the, the things that would work well with it would probably be Death Touch. If you could get Death Touch onto a creature with Reach, and you know, we haven't talked really about it before, you mentioned it earlier, that Reach is primarily a defensive ability. 
And when you start looking at a lot of the history of the cards with Reach, you see that they tend to have a, a higher, uh, higher toughness than they do power. And, and you can look at that with, like, uh, Rashka the Slayer. Now, granted, it only a- applies to black creatures in this case, but when it's assigned to blo- block a black creature, it ends up getting plus one, plus two until end of turn, turning it into a four, five. All right, so again, you get that higher toughness as opposed to power. Most of the spiders that we run into, high toughness, lower power. So you can give them death touch, block those difficult flyers, and kill them in one shot, without having to worry too much about it on the, you know, on the back end with your creature actually dying as a result of combat. I mean, it, uh, because you brought up Death Touch, um, one card that actually came to mind very quickly for me is uh, Poison Tip Archer. Oh, yeah, that's a fantastic card. Mm-hmm. Green-black elf creature with Reach and Death Touch. Yep, and, combined. I mean, two things on one body, and yes, please. Yeah, that's and, a solid and, creature. And I think it's like a 2-3... For three mana? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Three or four. Three or four, yeah. But no, oh. that's a solid card. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I believe that uh, Reach would also pair very well with uh, Vigilance. Yes. Oh, absolutely. So that you can always have a blocker open. Something that I really don't see with Reach that often that I can think of is Haste. No. You typically don't see Haste and Reach together. Trample is kind of the same way because mm-hmm. of the low power. Yeah. Um, you typically don't see trample with reach very frequently. And again, you know, we're trying to think about ways that we could enhance that creature with reach. I, I just, I, I don't see a great way to, to add haste. And I don't see giving it haste that, that much of a benefit, you know. However, if you can throw an equipment on there that would boost its stats and in the process just gives it haste and as well, you're looking more for that stat boost. Yeah. You know, if, but if you can get that equipment on it, that would really help. But, again, there's all sorts of different abilities out there, and these are just the ones we happen to throw out. You never know. You might find something that works really well for you that features Reach. In different formats, Reach has varying abilities of you know or various power levels. In Limited, especially if you're looking at a sealed or a draft format, Reach can really be that defining creature that keeps you from losing to a flyer. Yeah. You know. But outside of that, I mean, like I said, you just don't see Reach as being that popular of a keyword ability to where you're building a deck around your ability to block flyers. In my opinion, uh, Reach just seems to be like one of those, like, the good stuff kind of card. Like, you want to... You want it, but you don't really build around it. Like, yeah. It, it's just one of those things that it's you don't necessarily need it, but if you have it, oh yeah, definitely use it. it yeah, it there's just... absolutely nothing wrong with putting a creature that has reach into your deck as long as that creature fits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Chris, is there anything else we need to talk about with reach? I'm just waiting for it to, you know, finally let me be tall enough to reach the cookies on the top shelf. That's okay. One of these days. One of these days, Reach will help me. Maybe if I get enough cards with Reach, I just stack them up and make a st- stool out of it. There we go. <laughs> Magic cards and Reach can help you get cookies if you have enough of them. And now for a wonderful non sequitur. <laughs> if you're looking for some extended reading, we have from time to time, we're going to throw out some articles that might be good for you if you're really interested about learning you know, this game and how it works. 
We'll tell you the name of the article. We'll give you all the information where you can find it and give you a little summary of what it's about. But that's really all we're going to do. Outside of that, you're welcome to go read that article and see if it can help you further your magic game in any way. This week's extended reading is titled Quadrant Theory, and it was written by Marshall Sutcliffe back in 2014. You can find it posted to limited information, but I found it through Magic the Gathering's News Articles Archives. It's a great read, will take you less than 10 minutes to do, and in this article, Sutcliffe describes the four main states of the game really from a player's perspective. The first being opening or developing, next we have parity, then winning, and then finally losing. Throughout the article, he also discusses how cards function within each state of the game and provides examples of cards that would be best played while in a specific game state. So check it out. We've used it a lot when it comes to really furthering our own game and trying to decide, for example, how are we going to break parity? Or what should you really do once you're winning the game? How can you get out of that losing situation? So check it out. It's a great short read, and it provides a lot of important information that really advanced Magic players use on a regular basis. So Chris, I think it's about time we clean up this episode, and we have a question from our listeners to do that. What is the question this week? The question is, when building decks, what should be the focus on, such as creatures or abilities? Well, in my opinion, the first first thing you have to ask is, um, what's your deck supposed to do? How is it supposed to work? Because once you figure out that, then that will lead you in the right direction. For instance, if I'm uh, with the, let's use my Tusky deck that I'm going to be building. That one, what do I want it? How does it supposed to work? What, is, what do I want it to do? All right, um, let's go with, I want it to be tokens. Or better yet, squirrel tribal because squirrels. There you go. So that's, so once I figure out what that is, we can get, we can ask the next question, which is? What's your win condition? Great example I have. Build a deck back when Ikoria came out. It was a, a deck based off of the cycling ability, mm-hmm. all right? So the question I asked myself, how is my deck going to work? Well, I'm going to use the cycling ability to dis- or to discard cards and draw cards so I can work through my deck to find the card that I want. I was looking for my win condition, which was Zenith Flare. God, I hate that card. Zenith Flare was going to deal damage to uh, a creature or a player based off of the number of cards I had cycled, and then I would gain that much life. And so that one card, I I had four copies of it in the deck, but that was my win condition. I also had a secondary win condition in there too with a Flourishing Fox, where when I cycled a card, I put a plus one, plus one counter on it. So if I wasn't able to hit you with Zenith Flare, I was going to beat you down with a massive creature. So you're always, you have to have a way to actually win the game. And you need to plan at least one, if not two ways to win. Yeah, and I think it was a good, like, it was almost like a 50-50 split on whatever we played on whether I was going to die from a fox or a flare. Yeah, yeah, kind of. <laughs> um, and then the next question you have to ask is, are you going to be offensive and try and win early, or are you going to be defensive and try to win later? For me, now when I started playing, I was very offensive. I wanted to come out, I wanted to come out the gate swinging. I wanted to hit 
fast and hard. I wanted to be the first one to deal damage. But now as I've played more and more and I've come to understand magic on a deeper level and started getting into the rules and everything like that, I'm more comfortable playing either defensive or like uh, mid-range decks. So like mm-hmm. middle, like mid to late game is now where yeah. I tend to focus. But on top of, you know, playing rules, that also comes from playing a lot of commander, which takes a while. So you you build your commander decks not to... It's very... It's nigh impossible to win, like, turn four or five in a commander game unless you have it tuned perfectly. But in a normal commander game, we're going long. So right. you need to have the endurance to last that entire game. Well, I, but when you're when you're talking about you know being offensive early and mm. and that's something where you started, I, I started the same way when I first started playing. You know, my decks were based around that idea. I'm going to drop mana. I'm going to go ahead and drop a creature. I'm going to start swinging, and that was the way it was, it was going to work. And I my my goal was to win in as few turns as possible. And I think I think a lot of players start that way. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I think it's a great way to really get going. And you think about the way the game is set up and it's supposed to work. Most of us, our first experience is, oh, let's play this game. Here, You're going to play this land. You're going to tap it like this. You're going to play this creature. And then on the next turn, you're going to attack with that creature. And so that's, that's our focus is to do that. As we play more, we learn more about the defensive styles in the game and defensive capabilities. And we start to play with a little bit of that defense in mind. But when you're when you're really learning about uh, the, the game and how to play it, you start to develop your own play style, and you start to learn the play style of the group of people with whom you play, and that really influences how you should build your decks. What? How do you like to play? How does your group like to play? Do you like to still play really fast, really early, get that game locked up before anybody else has a chance to respond? You know, go go low and go fast, you know, or do you like to take a little bit more time and set up a way that you can control the game? How does your group like to play? If your group plays slower games and you're going to be that person that comes in and just rips them apart on turn one, okay, let's be honest, turn two, you know, you're you're going to have a hard time in that play group and they're going to learn real quick that, well, we got to take that guy out first yep. because it's just, it's not going to work. I mean, um, that's because it's, that guy. Well, yeah. You, you don't want to be that guy. <laughs> no, you don't want to be that guy. But of course, play groups all have you know different styles and and different formats, and that's something you need to think about too. Mm, yep. Um. So when I started, I was I played in standard, or as it was called back then, type one. <laughs> yeah, type one, type two. That's what we had. <laughs> so I started back in standard, and then like as I played more eventually the cards that i had fell out they rotated out and so i was like okay how can i still play with all the cards that i like and add in the new cards and that's whenever it was uh i think it was extended at that time which is now modern right yeah maybe something like i think i don't know (laughs) <laughs> the different the different formats have changed a lot. Yeah. It gets confusing. So so I started in standard and then I just wanted to keep playing, so I just started playing the different formats that let me play the cards that I started with. And then then there's Pioneer, which is sim uh, it starts 
like halfway between standard and wherever modern starts. I right. think something like that. And then modern is starts uh, includes cards from a lot earlier in the game. And then there's uh, legacy, which is even earlier. And then there's vintage, which is everything. Um, so the longer that you play, you slowly realize that you are able to play in all of the formats. So like I started in standard, but now, but lately I've been playing a lot of modern just because it's easier, it's funner, there's a lot more interactions. Um, so depending on what format you want to play in dictates what cards you have available. You are very limited in standard and vintage. Mm-hmm. The world's your oyster. If you want to run, if you want to run a relentless rats deck and just have nothing but rats in it, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> I, I wouldn't. It, it, it's fun. It's a niche deck. It's very comical. Rats are fun, but not very viable. No. And, of course, you're, you know, you're choosing your deck based off of the format that you're going to play and what other cards you may go up against. But the format is really going to determine, partially, your budget. Mm-hmm. And when you look at a game like Magic the Gathering, budget becomes an important part of, of, of your planning and how you're going to build that deck. How much are you going to really invest in a deck? Do you want to spend $20 and that's it? That's all the more you want to spend on your deck? Or is budget kind of the, the you know maybe not so high up on your list? And if you spend... You can two, spend $50,000 on a Black Lotus. Yeah, if, if you want to spend two dollars $300 on a deck, I mean, you can certainly do that. And that's, that's perfectly fine. But just make sure you know what you're getting into. And if you're going to set a limit on yourself for how much you're allowed to spend... Set that limit, and then you can look at a variety of sources for prices on cards. You know, there's um, TCG Player, you can check prices. MTG Goldfish, you can check prices. Uh, Star City Games, you can check prices. Card Kingdom. Card Kingdom, you can check prices, you know. And, and you can see how much about, or about how much this is going to run you. And then if you want to order off of Card Kingdom, Star City Games, TCG Player, go to your local game store, you know, you can, you can do this. But as far as budget goes, you also really need to see, you know, how long do you actually plan to play? You know, are, are you going to be a long-term player in this game and so you don't mind investing a lot of money up front? Or maybe, you know, this is kind of like a niche thing. You're, you've got a couple friends that play, so you're willing to give it a try. But maybe you, you got through that first pre-con deck that you had and you were all excited about it. And so you're ready to go ahead and build something a little bit bigger. And, you know, but you're not sure if you really want to make it a part of your, your life yet. And that's okay. You just got to make those decisions when you're looking at a deck. Yeah. I, I think with that part, with the how much are you going to let uh, invest in magic, um, I think it's safe to say that we've invested quite a lot. I mean, podcasts. But, uh, I mean, one thing that I found is that even if you, if you treat magic cards as investments and as value, you can definitely... I would buy I buy booster boxes. Well, there's cards in them that I don't use, that I don't play. I have older cards that I don't play with anymore. Easiest thing that you can do is to invest. You can reinvest all of your cards by selling them back, getting mm-hmm. some credit, and then turning around and buying the cards that you want. And then mm-hmm. whenever those fall out of favor or whatever, yeah, you can just rinse and repeat. You sell sell your old dead cards back and replenish your stocks and get new stuff and have 
and continue to have fun. Absolutely. I mean, it's magic is a game. You're going to win. You're going to lose. It's nothing to get. How do I want to put this? It's a game. Don't let it control you. You want to control it. I mean, simple as that. I mean, it's a game. If you want to invest tons of money into it, go for it. Go for it. You're welcome to. If you want to, if you want to play budget decks and that are still viable, that's another option. You might have to do a little more searching. You're gonna to have to spend some more time, mm-hmm. you know, building your deck. But you can absolutely build a budget deck and still be competitive. I mean, there's um, there's entire podcasts and YouTube series on on Commander just because it's so big. Um, Commander's quarters. All of his decks are on budgets. Yeah. So, I mean, if you want to invest, go ahead. If you want to play budget, go ahead. If you want to, you know, do that little, like, middle ground shuffle thing, go for it. Find you find what play style, what budget, what format, what play style, what play group, what deck type. Find what works for you and just play. Because you have to play the game to play the game. And I think above all... When you're really starting to, to find that deck and that you want to play and, and trying to focus on building it really well, remember, it should excite you. It, it should excite you to sit down and play this deck. If it doesn't, maybe think about something else. I mean, I have a, I have a good little anecdotal story for that. Norm, so me, I, I'm an I'm aggressive player. I love swinging. I love turning my board sideways and going straight for the face. Well, for Magic Fest, I decided to play Mill, which is, uh, at the time, I believe that Mill decks only made up 0.03% of the competitive meta. Mm-hmm. So I, was, I knew full well, full well, I was going into this competitive environment with a deck that was tier infinitely bad. Like, this thing was like... <laughs> this thing fell off the bottom rung. Uh, this thing fell off the bottom tier and was sitting on the floor when I picked it up. I knew I wasn't going to win. I knew I wasn't going to do good. Did that stop me from going and playing? No. I had a lot of fun. A lot of people a lot of people actually, you know, were they were surprised, they were impressed, they were laughing at the fact that I was playing mill in a competitive tournament. Did I finish with a awesome record? No, but as you can as you can clearly tell, I had a lot of fun. Find what works for you. If you want to do something different, do something different. Just have fun. Anything else left to to chat about with that question? Uh, I think we actually covered that one very well. I think so too. As always, if you have questions for us, please let us know. Uh, We'll do our best to research that question and provide some good feedback for you and and give you some new information or maybe some new insight. So, Chris, how can they reach us? All right. So the first way is by email, and that is uh, mtgunderthehood at gmail.com. And then there's also Twitter, which is at mtgunderthehood. Thank you for listening to this episode of MTG Under the Hood. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. We look forward to delving deeper under the hood with you in our next episode. Stay tuned.